and we pray the Lord will provide healing to you and uh, help and comfort. We have been studying the book of Colossians, and deliberately, I've been going slow so that I can absorb the material, and I hope that you have enjoyed the study on Colossians. Um, it has, uh, we've gone in fairly great detail uh, in order to look at all the nuances of Paul's language, what he has been trying to teach us, um, and how he's been trying to teach us. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. And everybody's got a handout. The handout is a goldenrod or gold, and that really helps if you're trying to follow along with what we're doing because a lot of this is kind of wordy, and you can look back. And if you at home don't get a handout and you'd like one, call the church office and we'll get one to you. And we're going to, some of you have commented about the asking questions early. We're going to do that again. No handout for that. You can just make notes on the margins of the uh, golden rod uh, handout. And they're pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but I thought they'd really help us in looking at things that are surrounding the book of Colossians and the setting that we have in that book. So how, how about, are y'all doing this morning? Are you, are you awake and feeling okay and dried off from the, from the rain and warmed up from the winds? I got a little wind when I got out of the car. It's always, you park on one side or the other, usually you get a little burst of wind to kind of wake you up. So I got, I got that this morning. So everybody, everybody's got a handout. Good. Okay. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Father, we thank you for the time that you have given us to look at this book. And I thank you for the book of Colossians and what it's meant to me. We thank you for what it teaches us. And you used Paul to teach us not only to reveal to the Colossians, but to reveal to each one of us who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what, how important he is in our salvation and that he is your representative to us. He is God in the flesh that lived among man, that died on the cross for our sins, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We thank you, Father, that what we are going to learn today, and I thank you for the blessing that it's been to me for the past few weeks as I've contemplated on what Christ in you, the hope of glory, means and how encouraging that is. Pray, Father, that you would help me to share that with those that are listening online, those that are here, and what a great blessing that is. Thank you for the privilege of teaching. Pray that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the handout um, should be dated, uh, this is, I think I labeled it part six, and we're looking at the section Colossians 1, 25 through 29. And so the first question I have for you today is the Van Winkles. Remember when Roger gets up and talks about the missionaries? Sure. The Van Winkles, are to, they're in Turkey, coincidentally. And they live in Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, Turkey. Now, what ancient biblical city was located in Izmir? Does anybody know? I couldn't hear. I heard a noise. Not Ephesus. That's good. That's a good. That's a good uh, guess. Yes, it's another one. What ancient city was located? Uh, in Izmir today. It's called Izmir today. Anybody? I, you said something else. I couldn't hear it. She, if she guesses enough time, she's going to get it right. I know. I know. Get to know Siri at Apple.com. So, anything, any other guesses? It's one of the seven, seven churches in... 
Ephesus is in Turkey, and that's real close to the to this, but not Ephesus. And we're going to talk about Ephesus in a minute. Well, it's Smyrna. I want to give you a chance. Smyrna is in, is uh, that S M Y R N A, and uh, about um, about. 1930, the name Smyrna was changed to Izmir, and the name Smyrna could have, they think it, it had to be been taken from the Greek word for myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H. You know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh yeah. um, that uh, the wise men brought to the Lord. Uh, it was the chief export in ancient times from Ephesus, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, Smyrna. And Smyrna was a seaport along the western coast, and it became a leading city in the Roman province, what was called Asia, um, from about 133 B.C. So Smyrna, it's funny you mentioned Ephesus, because it competed with Ephesus, which was also on the west coast, south of Smyrna. And they competed for, this, for the city, first city of Asia which city was going to kind of blossom and prevail and be the premier city of Asia. Smyrna, of course, was one of the seven churches addressed in Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10. And prophetically, a lot of people believe that those seven churches represented uh, the representation not only of the churches in the ages that succeeded, uh, but also represent a type of church and prophetically this church is seen by many to characterize Smyrna the suffering uh, and persecution and as evidenced by being named uh, from myrrh and I'll talk about myrrh in just a second so that would be 100 to 316 AD so the church Smyrna prophetically is believed by many to characterize the church during the period 100 to 316 A.D., which represented uh, persecution and suffering that the church endured. Now, myrrh, I kind of looked up myrrh because I was kind of curious, what, what is myrrh? Because, I mean, it's not like we go down to Walmart and get myrrh, right? That's not. But it's known also as B.O.L., Bola, bol, bola, hirabal, uh, myrrh is a natural aromatic sap-like resin or gum that's derived from small thorny uh, comophora slash myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H-A tree, which is related to the frankincense tree. So it comes from a tree native to Egypt. It's commonly used in Africa uh, in, in the Middle East. The name myrrh comes from the Arabic word M-U-R-R, -R, which means bitter, uh, as its scent sometimes is bitter. And having been, it's a prized, invaluable trade community, commodity rather, along the ancient spice routes, which went through Turkey and Africa, myrrh was so desired and so liked and so esteemed that they created all kinds of legends about it. And uh, they, uh, one Syrian and Greek legend tells about how the tree received its name. Um, the, uh, uh, Syrian king's uh, thesis' daughter, whose name was Myrrah, M-Y-R-R-H-A, was transformed by their protective gods into a myrrh tree to escape the father's homicidal fury. And so, you know, they made up all kinds of legends about it because it was so desired. That's used in medicine. Oh, it's, they believe it's the, the, the tree's resin is actually myrrh's tears. I think that's really interesting. But it's used in medicine, spice, ointments, and preparing the dead for burial. It's used for incense and many, many other uses. Uh, historically, myrrh scent symbolize suffering, which is why a lot of people believe myrrh was instrumental in naming the Smyrna, city Smyrna, and that church 
symbolized suffering and persecution. And it became associated with occasions like funerals and during these and other ceremonies, especially religious ceremonies, myrrh resin was traditionally burned over hot coals and the smoke gave a sweet, warm, woody aroma. It was often considered to have a property that was conducive to spiritual practices. Of course, these were not Christian practices. So myrrh was often used in meditation and prayer, like as an incense. Sometimes it was combined with frankincense. You always hear myrrh and frankincense together many times. And it was blended with citrus oils for that purpose. So it became a very valuable commodity for years and years and centuries and centuries, and especially in the East. Okay, so Smyrna uh, is now Izmir, and the uh, Van Winkles live there, our missionaries to Turkey. And um, did anybody know what recent event happened in the other end of Turkey? What? Earthquakes. earthquakes big earthquakes in the sevens, right? And uh, in fact, the church is sending relief. Multiple earthquakes. Yeah, somebody held up too. Multiple earthquakes. So that happened back then as well. Very earthquake prone area. Um, Smyrna is one of the seven churches. Some people uh, believe, uh, some scholars believe that that was typified the time frame 100 to 316 A.D. So we want to stop a minute and say hello to our guest who has not been with us for a while. Thank you for being with us. It's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you. Okay. So um, we, we're going through just a little, before we get into the handout, we're going through some questions. The first one was uh, uh, the Van Winkles live in Turkey. And they live in Izmir. Now that city, Izmir, is Smyrna. Number two, does the city of Colossae still exist? Is it still a city in Turkey? Somebody said, guess so. <laughs> Anybody know so? Okay. Uh, I couldn't help saying that. Uh, no, it's only ruins. And you can actually look at it. It is actually labeled on Google Earth. You could actually go and find Colossae. But, and you could see it, and it's just a mound where the city used to be. So it no longer exists. And uh, the closest city is a city called Honaz, H-O-N-A-Z. Probably misspelling it. But uh, not miss. I know how to spell it. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Now, Colossae declined... It, may, it reminds me of some of the cities that were along the main road, and then they changed the freeway to go around the city, and the city declined. That was one of the reasons the city declined, uh, because the trade route moved over and went around the, the uh, country, uh, rather the city. And so the trade route changed. Also, there were earthquakes uh, in around 60, they're not sure the exact year, around 60 A.D., there was an earthquake that did a lot of damage. Also, it seems like over the period of time that all the armies of all of the big conquerors went right through Turkey along the trade route and traveled that route. So there was a lot of political unrest and military conquest. So that Colossi no longer exists. And they've done a little work there but not a lot where you could go and look at the ruins. Number third question. So the city of Colossae does not exist. The third question, who started the church at Colossae? Who do we believe started the church at Colossae? And the answer is found in Ephesians, or rather Colossians 1.7, if anybody wants to look there. He was a friend of Paul's. Yeah, Epaphras, however you want to pronounce it. I call it Epaphras, but it could be Epaphras, I don't know. So we'll, sometimes I'll actually Google the saying, the words, to see what the correct pronunciation is. But since that was 2,000 years ago, roughly, uh, who knows how that's pronounced now. But Epaphras, uh, he was Paul's friend. Uh, 
we believe that he met Paul in Ephesus and maybe even have, was converted there to Christ. Uh, because we know Paul was there in Ephesus for quite a while and could have been saved there and then learned from Paul uh, and been tutored by Paul and then come back and commissioned to start the churches at Laodicea and Colossae. Um, he also ministered in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And uh, number four, how was Epaphras involved in the book of Colossians being written? He didn't write it, but how was he involved in that being written? I hear talking, but I don't hear. <laughs> well, he actually went to Rome where Paul was imprisoned and he told Paul of the issues in, in Colossae with the, with the dangers of the heresy there. So Paul, in response, wrote Colossians to refute those heresies and proclaim the truth because he was an apostle of Christ and uh, responsible for them. And you see Epaphras is also mentioned in Philemon, uh, verse. there's only one chapter in Philemon, verse 23. He's, he's mentioned in Epaphras, he says, Epaphras greets you when he wrote the book of Philemon, which also went to Colossae. So did Paul ever visit Colossae? Now, he wrote a book to them. Did he, did he ever visit them? Was, it, was that an answer? No, he did not visit them. And we, we know that because he says, uh, he says that he is responsible for them. In, uh, and he says as much in Colossians 1, 4, 7, and 8. And he, he, he commends Epaphras and says that he is ministering for Paul. And so Paul also indicates as an apostle, he's responsible for them. And then he is sharing uh, the truth. He doesn't say you've been engaging in this area, uh, this um, heresy, and this area is wrong. He's saying, here's the truth, and I want to share the truth about Christ with you. So he shows them the authentic and ignores the counterfeit. But he attacks the counterfeit by sharing them the real truth and focuses on that. Now, to go back, Sheila uh, told us Ephesus was the first question answer. But uh, where is Ephesus? I said it was close. Where Does anybody know where Ephesus was? Yes. It's on the west coast, about 30 miles or so below uh, um, Smyrna or Izmir now. And it, it no longer exists as a city that's lived in, uh, but they've, been do, they've done a lot of archaeological work, and it's near a city called S-E-L-C-U-K, Selchuk, as I understand that's pronounced. Uh, Ephesus was a major seaport and a major trade center, and it competed with Smyrna. And was famous for the temple of Artemis uh, or uh, Diana and it had a great library which uh, held an incredible amount of books one of the world's great libraries at the time and Timothy later on was a pastor there and um, Ephesus is one of the seven churches in Revelation and it is thought to typify the first, prophetically, the first century, first century church. Now it's a major tour site where people come. And uh, what's the guy on PBS that has the show where he, he goes and he visits Europe and how to travel? He's from like Oregon. And uh, that guy, I saw him go to Ephesus. It's called Walking Through History, I think. Yeah, uh, that, that's a different guy. 
This, yeah, this is a different guy. So this is this is a blonde-haired guy that, that, that travels with, I've forgotten his name. Rick Steves. Rick Steves. Yeah, I saw a thing where he went to Ephesus. They mentioned the library. They mentioned the Temple of Diana. And you remember they went absolutely crazy over great is the god goddess Diana. And they chanted that for hours because they they the crowd got all whipped up and upset at uh, uh, Paul. So... Um, now it's a major tourist site. But what's interesting is that the river and the, the harbor have silted up and it's no longer usable. It's not a big trade center anymore. So uh, Izmir became a great city and Ephesus died out. Now, did Paul ever go to Ephesus? I already gave that answer. Yes, he did. He he, he spent over two years there. Uh, he taught, Acts. if you want the background, it's Acts 19, verses 9 and 10. He actually uh, spent two plus years there. He went there, and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue and started teaching. And they rejected him. And so he went really to the Gentiles, and he went to the school of Tyrannus. T-Y-R-A-N-N-U-S, which I looked up that, and nobody knows what it actually is, but the custom was for um, occasionally, especially the in the Greek culture, uh, they would have um, a lecture hall. Uh, could have been a school, could have been a lecture hall. No one knows who Tyrannus was. It could have been like uh, you go to a school, and it's named the Kennedy School. It could have been somebody who lived in the past, somebody in the present, or a philosopher that lived then and was teaching. We don't know. I think that's interesting. We know exactly who Paul is, but we don't know who the person is that ran that school. And Paul was there two years and taught. And that's where we think Epaphras came up, along with maybe even Philemon, came up and they uh, met Paul, Paul either won them to Christ or others did, and then they, were, they received training uh, and um, education, spiritual education there about he would lecture. Some people think that he actually, Paul might have lectured between 11 and 4, the time where maybe some of the construction or other people that were involved had, would take a lunch during that time or some portion of that time. And he lectured then, made it convenient for them. And the rest of the time maybe did tent making. We don't know. But what we do know is that the Jews rejected him in the synagogue. And so he moved to the school of Tyrannus and taught two years. That's a long time for Paul to be in one place. Uh, now this is more extra credit kind of question. Um, Alice is not here to keep a score. Okay, you'll have to tell her if somebody gets it. What apostle, and I didn't know this until just the last couple of years, what apostle is thought to, I told you Timothy, who's not an apostle, but Timothy actually taught in, um, uh, um, was a pastor there at, um, in, in Colossae later on. But what apostle is thought to have lived out his life tradition we don't have it in the bible but we we have it from separate sources what apostles thought to have lived out his life in ephesus no he was martyred this this is i think the only apostle that, that wasn't martyred that's a good guess that's a real good guess i think i made a good guess that too anybody else john john you said john john yes apostle john is thought to have lived out his life there. And I think that, and so because of that, now this is pure speculation. Some people thought, well, if John was there, then Mary, the mother of uh, Lord Jesus, was there. But we really don't know that. That's more Roman Catholic speculation. And there's the island that's close to that. Yeah, Patmos was southwest uh, of that, out in the water, in the, the Mediterranean. He wrote uh, the book of Revelation in that, on Patmos, yeah. And he was, he was uh, uh, wanted to say maroon, but he was exiled there. Yeah. And when he was released, he was, we think that many people think that he went to Ephesus based on the secular record, not biblical record, tradition. 
not, not necessarily <laughs> truth. Okay, question number nine. Why, and this is you, what you think. This is not necessarily uh, what the Bible says. The book of Colossians doesn't say this book is important because. Why is the book of Colossians important? Now, we know that all of the Bible is important. And that, uh, but what distinguishes it from other books and or what makes it especially relevant today? Yeah, the, it refutes a heresy. Yes, the Gnosticism, which still exists today in forms. <clears throat> so, yes, it is important because it, it, it helps us uh, know what the truth is regarding, and, and, and really springboarding on that, the tremendous picture of and doctrine associated with the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and what Christ's ministry is. We're going to see today. Anything else? What now? Circumcision. Oh yeah, it, it talks about uh, it talks about uh, things that people do to help them think that they're working their way to heaven. And Paul said these things are an exercise of the flesh. That this is not. Not the reason that. Uh, what else, Sheila? Well, where are you? I am not in the handout. We haven't got to the handout yet. Oh. Yeah, but the, all the answers are in the handout. Most of them. This one or previous. Well, first of all, it's the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's one of the scriptures, and all the scriptures are important. But this one seems because it's a refuting a particular heresy, seems to have a more clear and fuller picture of the revelation of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, that he is God, that he's fully God, all the fullness dwells in him bodily, and that he's preeminent, that is, he is over all, and what he has done also helps us, uh, gives us an understanding of Paul's ministry, the service and suffering that he did, uh, Paul's, he mentions he's filling up with the afflictions of Christ, and we described that that was not, he is suffering because Christ didn't suffer enough, but he shares in Christ's sufferings, and putting it succinctly. And the doctrine of Christ, who he is, what he's done, and then also there's an emphasis, remember the first two chapters are about doctrine, the second two chapters are about Christian living, and uh, it describes that's not... Uh, not works, but it's actually uh, what we are to be doing as a result of our love and service to God and to Christ, the abundant life, Christian living. And then, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, the danger of false teaching and heresy. In chapter 2, verse 8, if you'll turn to chapter 1 anyway, I'll read this to you. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit or empty trickery after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And that word spoil, I love this, that word spoil, Paul uses a word that reflects a pirate taking someone and kidnapping them and taking them off and taking them away and stealing them away as pirate treasure or booty. So that's exactly what happens when false philosophers and people, false teachers, ensnare us. They take us away as their treasure. And I thought that was wonderful imagery. Okay, now how many of you uh, have read through the book of Colossians? Okay, that's fine. How many of you will read the book again this week? Okay. <laughs> okay, good. I think that, you know, when, when, before I started teaching this, Cindy and I read through this book, made her read it with me. I read it. I read it separately. She's probably listening. She'll say, don't say that. <laughs> we, we read through the book multiple times, and it was a real uh, joy. And 
what you want to do is absorb the book and you'll see things in there you didn't see before. Or you can look things up that you hear or you can ask questions about things you don't understand and find the answer. So those are the questions for today. You guys did real well. And uh, I'm, uh, you'd think I'd run out of stuff to ask you questions about, right? <laughs> Not happening. Okay. No. So, okay. Now go to the handout. It's a goldenrod handout or kind of yellowish handout. And uh, uh, we've been looking at, under introduction, four aspects of Paul's ministry in relationship to the Colossians. First thing was suffering. You see that A, B, C, D? And then offset. This is where we are now. Commission to preach. We're looking at Paul's verses 25, chapter 1 through 29. I want you to go there. We're going to read that in a minute. Uh, Paul's commission to preach. And then uh, what's involved in that? And uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is his concern. C and D is a challenge. Now, we've already looked at suffering. We've been looking at his commission to preach for a number of weeks because I really wanted to absorb that and help you absorb it as well. And then uh, the next, uh, when we get to it, the concern will be next to the challenge when we get into chapter two. So suffering, uh, prior to the current section in verses 15 through 23, uh, Paul proclaimed Christ's unique supremacy, his sovereignty, his superiority, his sufficiency, his preeminence. Christ is over all. He included in verse 23 with a reference to the spread of the gospel to the world with the statement that he was a minister of that gospel. And then verse 24, he stated uh, that his sufferings were a part of that ministry. So we're going to stop right there. I'm going to read verses uh, 24 through 29 if you want to follow along. 24 through 29. And I want you to think about um, what is said here. And get familiar with it again. Verse 24, uh, Colossians. Who now, re let's see, I'm going to read, I'm going to read 23. Because it, it's got, the last part has something. Whereby Paul made a minister. So, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof... I, Paul, am made a minister. So he's made a minister of the gospel. And verse 24, who now rejoice, he's saying, I, Paul, now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is left behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So the body is the church. And he goes, verse 25, whereof, or of which, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, that's Christ, whom Christ we preach, warning, verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, Whereunto I labor, I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Okay, so we're on the commission to preach under, under the introduction, four aspects of Paul's ministry. If you look down, B is shadowed right below it, commission to preach, Colossians 1.25. And so this is the second aspect of Paul's ministry. See how that's connected the B. You can draw an arrow from the B in the top part down right in the middle of the page with a big title that says his commission to preach. So that's the second ice pack. I wanted you to know where we were in that outline. That's why I did that. Does that make sense? Everybody see that? Okay. 
So now we're, we've been in this section, his commission to preach. Uh, there were four fe features of his preaching ministry that he described. One, his appointment. We looked at that in the past weeks. Then today and maybe uh, last week, we looked at his message. We did verses 25b through 28a. And then we're going to look at, Lord willing, his method today. And then today or next week, we'll look at his aim in verse 29. So Paul's appointment, we went through this in detail in previous weeks. Paul's appointment is shown in verse 25a, whereof or of which, that means of the church, I am made a minister. Gospel and other places. He's a minister of God. He's a minister of Christ. He's a minister of the new covenant. We read all of those scriptures. Now, <clears throat> as a minister of the church, paragraph B, the last paragraph at the bottom of page one, as a minister of the church, he is to serve and suffer in the manner that's necessary for the welfare and requirements of the church and the gospel. As the Lord directs, so in his ministry for the church, he will serve, but he may suffer also. Now, suffering and service for Christ and the church was a duty, his duty, and a responsibility. Now, he talks about that he rejoiced in suffering, but it was a duty and responsibility. Um, in verse 24, he talks about who rejoiced and my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is left behind uh, of the afflictions of my, of, in my flesh for the body's sake, which is the church. Where have I made a minister? As part of being a, an apostle and a minister, he s served and suffered for the church. Now, we also have a duty and responsibility to serve and even suffer, not as apostles, but as servants of God and heirs. And we've read these scriptures before. Um, and I want to make a point here, something that kind of came to me just this morning. Paul was a minister of Christ's body, the church. He says that, minister of the gospel, but he specifically says he's a minister of Christ's body, the church. Now, that gives the church quite an, important, an importance, the body of Christ. And... Today, I believe we give less importance to the church than Paul did. I think we, we think church is there. I'll, I don't necessarily have to identify with it. I can just go every once in a while, and that's good enough. And I'm not talking about the people who are ill or have difficulties, but the sense of being a part of the church. We also are to be because minister really means servant. We're, to be, we're also to be ministers of Christ's body and serve Christ's body. And there's an importance there. I think that in our culture, it's all about the individual and the John Wayne syndrome or the Joan Wayne syndrome, whatever you want to call it, that, that we think more about me than we do about Christ's body. And we have, we're members one of another. And I think that uh, there's, and our culture has influence there. Um, we, in other cultures, we don't see that. There's a great allegiance to the church and the body of Christ. So I think we, we have a duty also to serve and uh, even suffer, not as apostles, but as servants of God and heirs, and also to be servants of the church. Look at the top of page two. And... Um, According to the dispensation of God really means Paul's appointment, his calling, was on the terms of that word of stewardship or the arrangement and plan of God. Just like you're a steward of money, you, have, you develop a plan uh, and uh, arrange it, uh, invest it. Well, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was investing Paul as a minister, his minister, and Paul viewed his work to which God had appointed Paul as a sacred trust and special privilege requiring the utmost accountability, responsibility, and dedication to God. He was commissioned by God. Paul was accountable to God. 
And we are as well. We have a sacred trust that God has given all of us gifts. And some of, them, some of you use them marvelously. And some of us are working on using them better. But we are, it's a sacred trust and a special privilege in serving God by serving one another and, and serving him. We are serving him by serving one another in the church. So what was Paul's message? Now, if you look back on the front page uh, under his commission to preach, right in the middle of the page, Paul's message is number two of the, of the, whole, the, of the commission to preach. Paul's message is number two, item two under his commission to preach. So this is the second aspect of his commission to preach. So what was his message? Well, uh, various phrases were used to identify Paul's message. He, the first one is the word of God in verse 25b. He said, Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So his message is the word of God. And that we, we've... The paragraph states that uh, this sums up the oral proclamation of the gospel, and it's also used as a synonym for the gospel. And then item B is the word mystery. The word of God is revealed as a mystery in verse 26 and 27. The word of God, even the mystery, which had been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So, the word mystery is, we discovered, is not Agatha Christie's mystery or another mystery writer. It's not who done it. It's it's really what's been done, um, and it's it's a revelation of God. Okay, and it came from language that was used in the secular world at the time, basically about secrets, and it means to learn a secret uh, and that which is known by the initiated. Uh, Paul took a word that was misused by false religion, reading from the paragraph B in the middle, and used it to express great truths from God. In the New Testament, it's used of one, a truth made known only by divine revelation. And number two, it's made known in a manner and time appointed by God, and three, it's made known to only those who are illumined by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in the New Testament refers to something that was once a secret that is now revealed in the gospel and God's word. And it's used four times in Colossians, and I've written those. So you can think of it as truth revealed. And then item paragraph C there under Paul's message Paul describes a mystery as having two characteristics in 26b. Even the mystery that hath or which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So mysteries were hidden, but now made known. And the knowledge was not known to previous generations and ages in the Old Testament, for example. But now it's revealed to believers, his saints. This knowledge was covered up, if you will, from the people of former ages and generations. And it made manifest means shown openly, disclosed, revealed. Now, and I mentioned last week, the Greek grammar here is a little irregular. And, um, and, and it goes from hath been hid and then to a very demonstrative statement made manifest or shown openly. And the scholar Peake says, uh, this shows evidence of Paul's intense joy that the long silence has been broken. And Paul is content with nothing short of a definite statement of the glorious fact. We're getting into something that was revealed by Paul, by God, through Paul, and this time frame to great encouragement of the saints. Verse 27 reveals that to the saints, God would make known the riches of his glory, of this mystery, 
among the Gentiles. That's verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now, uh, a scholar named Norley said, it is God's will that this mystery be fully explained to all the nations, Gentiles, in its riches and glory. Now, this sense of riches is not gold and diamonds and silver and all these other things, but it's spiritual richness, riches and gloriously divine significance. Among the Gentiles is literally in the Gentiles and identifies where this wealth of glory and this mystery is focused. Paul was joyful and he's in awe of the wonder and divine significance of the previously unexpected prospect of the Gentiles' nations and the inclusion in one body. So that's the last sentence on page two. And I gave the illustration last week about a lady in the church we, we went to many years ago before I went overseas that her family went out uh, gold panning and they got gold fever. And they just, they lived to go and pan that gold. The riches were just so alluring. And to, to make money and to make hundreds of dollars panning gold, they had a large family, seven or eight kids and the husband and the wife. And they just, they went, they got gold fever. This is not that kind of riches. This is spiritual riches. These are the riches that help us live from day to day. Um, MacArthur says, uh, this mystery re reveals, uh, this mystery refers to truth hidden until now, but revealed for the first time to the saints in the New Testament. And that some of these truths, mysteries, include, number one, the incarnate God, from Colossians 2 to, to chapter 3, verse 9. Number two, Israel's unbelief in Romans 11. Lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. The unity of the Jew and Gentile made into one in the church, Ephesians 3. And the rapture of the church in 1 Corinthians 15. And this passage, which... Uh, the mystery will be specifically identified. Turn the page to the top of page three. So, what is this mystery? Now, I know I've talked a long time, I asked a bunch of questions, drove you crazy, but this is very important. I want you to listen. This is one of the most important scriptural truths. It really is a blessing. I have just... This morning I was looking at this early before I came in and I was just floating to church. What a joy. What is this mystery? Well, verse 27b tells us that it's uh, the, the riches and glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. So the revelation of this mystery is the indwelling Christ in his people, which now includes Gentiles. The mystery consists of the offer of salvation, reading from the paragraph E, top of page uh, 3. Um, Christ, the mystery consists of the offer of salvation, redemption, and reconciliation to the Gentiles. It appeared that they had been previously excluded from God's favor, but now are revealed as having been included in his previous, un previously unknown plan from the beginning. And Curtis Vaughn says, The mystery then, long hidden, but now revealed, is not the diffusion or spreading of the gospel among the Gentiles, but the indwelling of Christ and his people, whether Jews or Gentiles. You remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't live in people. Christ did not live in people. They were, for, for many of them, like Elisha and Elijah, remember, let thy mantle follow me. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they did some service. That's not the way. We have not only the Holy Spirit, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ living within us. You got your hymn book in front of you? Grab a hymn book and look at 608. 608. As I was studying this, I've thought of, I thought about this. This is 
this was written by Daniel Whittle and James McGanahan. Uh, Daniel Whittle was a, a uh, they called him Major Whittle. He was a Civil War veteran, and he, he was one of Moody's uh, itinerant evangelistic teams that went out and about. James McGranahan took Philip Bliss's place that died in the train wreck in Ashtabula, Ohio, um, like December 29th of, uh, I've forgotten the year, but it was in the 1870s and uh, um, after the Civil War. And his, he was killed, his children were spared, and James McGranahan took his place to write the music. And Daniel Whittle wrote this. It said, Once far from God and dead in sin, no light my heart could see. But in God's word, the light I found. Now Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation is this, or this, that Christ liveth in me. And he goes on to, as rays of light from yonder sun, the flowers of earth set free. So life and light and love came forth from Christ living in me. The sun shines on the flowers and causes them to grow and prosper. And Christ lives in us. Life, light, and love comes forth. I love that imagery. And then, Verse 3, as lives the flower within the seed and in the cone, the tree, so praise God of truth and grace, his spirit dwelleth in me. And number four, with longing all my heart is filled, that like him I may be, as on the wondrous thought I dwell, that Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation is this. Christ liveth in me. So Christ lives in me. And that song does a wonderful job talking about the joy that is. How not only the Lord Jesus Christ lives in us, but the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we're going to talk about next week, the hope of glory. And I hope you come back for that because that is one of the most glorious truths. Christ lives in us and he is our hope of glory. Well, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and he's called the earnest of our salvation. What's the difference? Come back, and let's take a look at that, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us to look at your word. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ, in addition to the Holy Spirit, lives within us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to ponder that truth this week and understand what all that means. Bring us back next week that may we study your word. I pray that you bless that time the time that follows, we pray for all those that are sick and ill, that you would be with them. Bless our service and the meal to follow the afternoon service. Thank you for each family represented here. We pray for those that are ill here and at home, that you provide healing. In Jesus' name, amen.